It's March 2015, Episode 4, Open Source Bach. Welcome to Hacking Culture, featuring in-depth interviews with free software advocates. Hacking Culture is brought to you by Lullabot, and I'm your host, Matthew Tift. While this show deals primarily with topics related to open source and free software, there are a lot of closely related free culture movements such as open government, open education, and creative commons. In this special bonus episode of Hacking Culture, we are going to be discussing some intersections between free software and music. Today's topic, broadly speaking, is the free culture movement although the specific area of our discussion is something for which we don't necessarily have a good term. We could call it free music, open source music, Libra music, or perhaps open source Bach. Whatever it's called, there is a lot of interesting work going on in this area, such as the Free Music Archive, the International Music Score Library Project, CC Mixter, and Cash Music, which was the topic of Hacking Culture Episode 3. Today, I am joined by Robert Douglas and Thomas Bonta to discuss some of their projects that make music available in multiple open formats, including public domain recordings, printed sheet music, digital sheet music that can be read with free software, braille music scores, and more. In fact, the theme music from Hacking Culture comes directly from one of these projects, so I am thrilled to be joined today by Robert and Thomas. Robert, let's start with you. You're from the United States, you live in Germany, and you travel frequently. Where are you today? I'm pleased to be in my living room at home in Cologne, Germany, where I just arrived after traveling to Paris this morning, so it was a there and back again day for me. So you've worked for a lot of Drupal companies, including Acquia and Lullabot, and you're currently with the Commerce Guys. And like me, you're a trained musician. Was there a point when you made a conscious choice to work with software rather than playing music for a living? There was definitely a very conscious point when I made that decision. And the way I like to tell this story these days is that I had achieved my life's goal of winning a job in a German orchestra, and I was sitting in that orchestra. I think it was before a rehearsal or during a rehearsal or after a rehearsal, and we had a, a beer in our hands, and I, I was thinking, you know, I've done just about everything with the horn that I set out to do, and I'm poor, and this orchestra isn't everything that I had hoped for, and I'm no longer quite motivated enough to get into a better one, and worst of all, I can't even afford the beer that I'm drinking right now. So I think I'm going to do something else. And uh, I went through all my options. Elementary school teacher, nope. Actor, nope. <laughs> Bodybuilder, nope. And decided that the, uh, as an American in Germany, the easiest thing to do would be to go back to my childhood roots when I had a Commodore 64 and taught myself basic uh, and to go back to those roots and uh, actually become a programmer because the, the internet seemed like a kind of a cool thing. That is a good story. Now, I apologize for asking, but people always want to know, are you still performing regularly? 
No, because I decided being an amateur horn player would be even less fun than being that underpaid professional one, so I sold the horn and I bought a laptop instead. I have to live my music life vicariously through my wife, Kimiko Ishizaka, who's who's actually in the next room practicing Chopin right now, so uh, I, I'm still quite exposed to performing. And I'm going to ask you one question that I've heard you ask other people, since you are very involved in the Drupal community. How has Drupal changed your life? I mean, it's defined my life for the past mm, 12, 12 years, just about. And I was very fortunate that uh, my decision to become a, a programmer and do internet things happened at a time when so much was going on and so many uh, formative projects were starting. Uh, I was not qualified to at that time to actually do anything meaningful with software. I was a really terrible programmer really at the start. And it was only because I was there at the right time at the beginning and worked really hard and uh, discovered my talents along the way that I, I was able to have any success with it. So I really owe everything in my career right now to Drupal and the timing of meeting Dries and becoming involved. Excellent. Now I'd like to introduce Thomas. You are located in Ghent, Belgium, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, it's not the center of Belgium, but it's in between Brussels and Bruges. Uh, very nice city actually to live in. And uh, if you pass through, certainly it's uh, worth a visit. And you work for a company called MuseScore, which is also software of the same name, and it's music notation software. Now, I have to say that MuseScore is something I wish I could have used in college and graduate school, because while the costs have maybe gone down a little bit in the recent years, music notation programs are pretty expensive. Tell us a little bit about MuseScore. Uh, as you said, MuseScore is uh, open source and free software uh, to make sheet music, uh, to notate music, as we say. And I started uh, being involved with MuseScore in, let's say, 2006 or even a bit earlier. Um, it was back then a hobby project of a German uh, software developer and a piano player. Uh, he's named Werner Schwer. And um, he actually started the project just for himself as he was composing on the piano. He wanted to notate uh, his compositions. And since he found anything else lacking that was on the market, he uh, scratched uh, his own itch, so as we say in open source world. And so for myself, my own reasoning to join MuseScore was because I was, as a very amateur piano player, I'm always in need of sheet music, so I can't just play by ear. And um, as I was looking around uh, to find sheet music of certain pieces and so forth, uh, I had often uh, not found what I was looking for, either just offline in stores, either online. This frustration, which I developed from early age, eventually resulted in the idea, let's make open source software that people can use to notate music, spread it worldwide. So basically anyone uh, could produce sheet music and therefore enlarge the accessibility of sheet music and that would uh, basically solve my own problem then. Because after all, so when I was looking around for sheet music, basically you only find the bestsellers. Uh, if you go beyond that, it's, it's sometimes really hard. So that was my, my personal goal to, uh, to fix that. 
And MuseScore is about much more than just digital scores. For example, on your website, people can hear audio and see digital sheet music and watch appropriate measures get highlighted right on the web page. Yeah, that's correct. So it started as uh, just desktop-based software uh, running on, on Windows, uh, Mac, and Linux. But as people were uh, making very nice pieces of sheet music, we figured out we would also plug a social sharing website uh, to the software where you could make your own account and then upload your creations and share it with just a few people or with the whole world. And indeed, you can see the sheet music in the browser. Uh, you can listen to it. Uh, and you see the, 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 the bars progressing. Uh, we even have features where you can synchronize it with YouTube videos. So you'd rather listen to the YouTube video instead of the synthesized um, uh, audio. So in fact, we were looking for various ways how to uh, give sheet music a sort of different life. Uh, so previously it was only on paper and uh, didn't do much, uh, but with digital sheet music, the, the possibilities are, is not endless of course, but much more possibilities. And that's how basically uh, I also met Robert as I was looking for a way to, to, to make sheet music more interesting. Uh, and we talked about sheet music and so forth. I was on a DrupalCon uh, back in 2007. And that's where we basically yeah, placed the seat of our future collaboration. Ah, there are two websites, musescore.org and musescore.com, and they're both Drupal sites, mm -hmm. which means I guess all three of us are Drupal developers. And as I understand it, the free software is available at musescore.org, and the company website is musescore.com. Yeah, that's correct. So when, uh, when I launched the website, uh, so it's Drupal 6 based, actually it's Pressflow, but okay, it doesn't really matter. It was 2008. And then uh, two years later, uh, we needed, so that social sharing website. And I kind of was inspired what WordPress did. So wordpress.org and then .com. And we mimicked, in fact, that kind of setup. Um, so musical.com is where you can host your sheet music and share it with the world. Musical.org is where the open source community resides that works together on the, uh, on the free and open source software. And at this point, MuseScore is your full-time job. I've been trying to, uh, to make it a, a sustainable business uh, since, let's say, 2005. And it's still an ongoing situation. So I, meanwhile, um, uh, a German guy, so Wendt, as well as a French guy, Nicolas Fromont, they jumped on board uh, as, as business partners. Uh, so with the three of us, we run a MuseCar as a, as a real startup. But uh, it's not like we are paying ourselves huge uh, salaries. So uh, it's very much a bootstrap startup and you're still building uh, towards the future. I think what you guys are doing is fantastic. project that the two of you worked on together was called the Open Goldberg project. Where did the idea come for that? Basically the idea came when we were developing 
uh, MuseScore 2.0. We were looking for a way to make it for us uh, more fun uh, and, and put a, a milestone uh, for ourselves. Uh, back then, so Kickstarter started to come up and so forth. We were looking for uh, using or leveraging Kickstarter to get a, a new edition created, an open source edition. And I um, went to Köln, I think, or I can't recall when specifically I, I pitched the ID to Robert. But of course, uh, the synergy was was there right right away, as uh, Kimiko was back then studying the Goldberg variations. And uh, we had no piece identified yet that we wanted to make an addition for. And so the synergy was there. We were just going for then uh, open source Bach. So taking the Goldberg variations and uh, Kimiko would do the recording. Uh, we would do the, the addition. And Robert uh, did the whole thing with the Kickstarter. So the, that magically worked out brilliantly. So Open Goldberg was released under the Creative Commons Zero which is a public domain license. Did you guys ever consider any of the more restrictive Creative Commons licenses that would require derivatives to be free or a license that would limit commercial use? I think when we try to define the goal for the Kickstarter, obviously we were thinking about which license to choose, but the risk of, let's say, uh, spurring up some discussion for potential backers that would say, well, it's it's uh, open source, yet it's some kind of restrictive license. That would not help the project. So we went for CC0. I think we were trying to make a statement, and the maximum statement that you could make in this space was to apply no restrictions at all. So anybody can take the audio recording or the digital score and do whatever they want with it. They can remix the score, they can remix the audio, they could use it in a video, whatever they want. That's correct. So given the Creative Commons model that culture always builds on the past, it seems like Creative Commons was an appropriate license. On the other hand, some people believe in this Orwellian notion that sharing is theft. What would be your response to someone who believes that people that download the Open Goldbergs are pirates or thieves? We have an interesting anecdote to this, actually. Thomas and I attended a conference in Munich, Germany, called Classical Next. And during the showcase presentation, where we were actually demonstrating the score-following technology of MuseScore and um, SampleSumo, along with the uh, Goldberg Variation Score and Chemical playing on the piano, and we were preaching about our ethos of sharing and giving music away. Uh, not that we prescribed that for everybody, by the way, but that that was what we had chosen to do. During the very presentation that we were giving on that topic as a showcase of the conference, there was a television crew from Bavarian uh, Television who were interviewing other people at the conference, and they put together a report that literally said and aired on TV broadcast from the conference that if you download files from the internet, you're a criminal. And we were separated by only meters and a wall. We were in one room, they were in another room, and we were saying such diametrically opposite things at the same time 
but only they were being broadcast on Bavarian television. And I thought it was very ironic at the time that out of the two messages that were emanating from that conference, that was the one that got the bigger podium. Wow. That was quite a story. Those sound like two very different approaches. So do you feel like these projects are aligned with the free culture movement? I, I do. It's definitely well aligned. And I know that there's a, a large debate about commercial-friendly open source versus free software. And my opinion on the matter is not so dogmatic, but there, there is somebody who has an opinion on this. And I want to read to you an email that I received fairly recently on, on this very topic. So I, 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 was, I was at uh, DrupalCon, in fact, uh, and I received this mail. I opened it and I read. Uh, Richard Stallman sent a message using the contact form at Open Goldberg Variations. And he wrote, your recordings are free slash Libra. How about supporting the cause of freedom by calling them free or Libra? The word open sounds nice, but it doesn't stand for anything. And that's why people started using it. And, and, and as always, you know, that's a, it's a dogmatic uh, stance. And I was, first of all, extremely honored that Dr. Richard Stallman, a man whom I respect greatly, took the time to write to me and to point this out. And I had to acknowledge that he's basically right. And when I searched my memory for why we chose the word open instead of free or Libra, well, uh, I think it was simply just a matter of mass marketing. And it had a nice ring to it. And I think that a lot of people were able to latch on to the concept. Free, unfortunately, uh, has a dual meaning in English. It means gratis and Libra. And gratis is, you know, without, you know, having to pay, I get something for free, is unfortunately the first thing that people associate with, uh, with free. They don't, they don't think of the Libra, the free as in speech aspect of it. And Libra sounds a little bit like guerrilla warfare. So I think open was a nice neutral ground. Um, <laughs> but in any case, um, I, I secretly also hoped that Dr. Richard Stallman took time to, to listen to the recording as well. That is a great story. Wow. It, it does hint at what I was alluding to at the beginning of the show. There isn't necessarily a good term because I, I, I completely agree that just calling it free Bach or something like that has a very different ring than open source Bach. Your, your, uh, your point makes a lot of sense to me. Another aspect of the open Goldberg variations was in June 2012, when I was still an employee of Wisconsin Public Radio, the open Goldberg project partnered with Wisconsin Public Radio, which is in the United States to broadcast the Open Goldberg Variations while simultaneously providing the score on the web and allowing the audience to follow the notes being played, see the measures highlighted and pages turned automatically synchronized with the music from the radio. Now, it seemed like quite a feat. And as far as I know, that was the first and only time something like that has ever been done. So I was curious, Robert, how did that broadcast experiment live up to your expectations? 
Well, I found the whole thing quite thrilling. Uh, first of all, the technical challenges were really uh, intense because the radio transmission has no capability of telling your website what it should be doing. So we had to find uh, a very uh, set of tricky ways to make those coordinated and make sure that your website was in fact exactly aligned with the music. And it, if I remember right, there were other complications like the fact that uh, Wisconsin Public Radio actually has something like five or seven different time delays for different transmitters. So different people or different substations, I don't remember how it was divided, had uh, anywhere between a three and a second, seven second delay from when the music was actually being broadcast to when they were hearing it, which means that the software and the setup for this had to take all of that into account. So it was all, all quite tricky. I do remember, though, that one thing that was maybe a small negative of it was that it felt to me uh, like performing again in the orchestra, uh, not in the positive way that I got to play really loud, but uh, more in the negative way that I had performance anxiety. And in fact, I screwed up. I made a I made a mistake. Um, they they started the recording, and I I was expecting sound come out of the speakers in the studio and there was no sound and i realized that uh, I, my headphones weren't turned on so i didn't start the synchronization right away and the poor software uh, got off to a bad start and had to had to um do some uh i think i had to manually catch it up um with where the broadcast was once i had made the mistake and i was like oh my gosh i can't do anything right <laughs> only for the uh, for the area and then uh, you fixed it with the first variation so good luck only for the aria he says of the goldberg variations <laughs> <laughs> that's the one that people like the most it reminds me of when i was a freshman in college as a young music student and i got to or had to turn pages for a pianist and i remember feeling so worried about that <laughs> Even though I wasn't playing, there I was turning pages, realizing I could screw things up for other people. But actually, what you what you mentioned, I'm quite sure that I don't I don't I don't remember anybody complaining about that. I think for the most part, everybody was quite impressed that they could listen to the radio and look on their computer and watch a score go across as they listen to it. My aunt enjoyed it very much. <laughs> And I know everybody at WPR enjoyed that experiment. And now you guys are back with a sequel of sorts, the open, well-tempered clavier. How is that project uh, different from the Open Goldberg project? I think the most significant difference in this project was that we, we in the Goldberg variations, we self-published the the CD. We self-produced it, and you know had it printed. And there are still some boxes somewhere that have a couple hundred of them sitting around, hoping that people will buy them. And that was really hard and a lot of work and also constitutes a certain amount of risk financially. And we didn't want to do that. Plus, we wanted a little bit more legitimacy, if you want to say, 
I personally wanted to be able to say that uh, we had released this on a record label whose business is producing and releasing records. So prior to the project, I did a very massive search of all of the known small to medium-sized record labels that produce classical music. I excluded by default all of the Deutsche Grammophones and the, you know, the Warner Musics and Sonys and EMIs and stuff like that. And I very carefully uh, solicited a large number of them with the project proposal. And it's a difficult task, if you think about it from my position, to say, we want you to produce a CD that anybody can copy and share by default. In fact, we're going to say on the CD, please copy and share this CD. It runs a little bit contrary to the current state of the recording industry, who is still more or less in the mode of copy it and we'll sue you. So it was quite easy to disqualify some of these because they could almost not wait to hang up on me. On the other hand, I found a number of labels that were interested or even enthusiastic about the project, but one really stood out uh, that was Parma Recordings, and they've got a sub-label called Navona Recordings, which is focused on classical music. And from the absolute moment that we spoke together, it was clear that it was going to work well. So we ended up going with them, and they even, you know, they had a, a marketing plan, and they had a legal review of the entire concept to make sure it was watertight. And they had an art department that helped us. And it was, it was just a perfect fit. And we're really actually thrilled with the collaboration with them. So I think that's probably the biggest material difference between the two projects. Most of the fundamental details beside that are the same. This new project is also Bach, public domain score, public domain recording made with MuseScore. And it's also collaboratively edited. The score went through a public review. Yeah, correct. From our side of the, uh, the, the project, there is one main difference. So when we initially released the Goldberg creations, one of the goals was, of course, to make Bach more accessible. And we learned that we didn't quite reach everyone, basically. And it was one important yeah, part of the audience that was not reached, uh, basically visually impaired and uh, blind musicians. And they uh, either need a special kind of uh, edition of the score, basically a large print version, uh, or they use uh, Braille music. And so when we, uh, when we got this feedback, uh, we were very much kind of inspired to uh, make that happen then for the Waltham Clavier. Apart from that, all the other things are, are the same, so uh, we still uh, yeah, we use score obviously. Uh, we did outsource the work. So um, initially it was Vanne, the lead developer of, uh, of MuseScore, who created the Goldbergs. Uh, and in this case, it's uh, a guy from France named uh, Olivier Miguel, who uh, did the edition. And uh, so we are soon uh, to release this, uh, this work. Um, so uh, yeah, it will soon be over, unfortunately. This is going to be released as a Braille score as well. So is that connected to how MuseScore works? Well, not per se. So for, let's say, creating Braille scores, 
what you need basically is specialized software, which we don't own. But what it needs is a music XML file. And a music XML is uh, basically a standard format for uh, exchanging sheet music. And music XML is what uh, MuseCore supports as well, uh, both import and export. So as soon as we release the Open Well Tap Clavier edition, then uh, along with the music XML file, then people can take that music XML file and then uh, convert it to a, a Braille uh, Braille file, and uh, and that's it basically. So through this music XML, the the edition can can reach many different use cases and so forth. Uh, so that's what we basically do. Yeah, make it more accessible this way. As part of this project, you guys had another Kickstarter campaign, and this time you raised more than forty-four thousand dollars, according to the website. How is that money used? The the money falls into two buckets in a campaign like this because of the fact that we're uh, we had physical goods that need to be delivered. Then there's a fulfillment cost that's involved. So that means that we actually have to mail people CDs, we have to mail people printed scores and things like that. So the money was divided um, roughly two two thirds to one third between production costs and fulfillment costs. And the larger portion of the production costs are involved in the actual recording, editing, and mastering of the uh, well-tempered clavier recording on the piano with Kimiko Ishizako. So Kimiko didn't take any money. She didn't get paid to do this, uh, but we had to pay basically everybody else involved, including renting the studio, there were some costs involved in transporting the piano from Vienna to the studio. There had to be a piano tuner there for six days uh, and all sorts of other costs, including uh, flying Anne-Marie Sylvest from uh, Canada to Germany to, to do the, you know, the editing and the, 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 to be the recording producer. So it's pretty expensive making one of these recordings. But yeah, that's, that's the rough breakdown. have these projects lived up to your expectations so for us for uh, for musecore it was a very cool way to expose our work because we knew with the development of musecore 2.0 uh, we would be in for a couple of years so that really means basically that you sit at home and you work uh, all day long on the code but if you i mean it's very easy just to do only that but then whatever you do is not seen by the world and so these kickstarter projects uh, were for us a real opportunity to show the world what we were doing. Because normally, I mean, software is rather boring. I mean, it's just software. But if you give it an extra, an extra dimension through these, these, these projects, people started to talk about it in a different way. And, and so that really helped uh, to yeah, push out the name of MuseCore out there. Um, so, and that yeah, worked brilliantly for us. I have to say that when I saw what you guys were doing first uh, a few years ago, it made me think of the history of geeks that have tried to make music more available to people. So, for example, in the 16th century, the Italian printer Petrucci created the first book of sheet music printed from movable type. 
And in so doing, he exposed music to a much larger section of the population and brought about a monumental change in history and distribution of music. Or jump forward a few hundred years and there was the Radiohead experiment in 2007 when Radiohead released In Rainbows as a digital download and encouraged fans to pay what you wish. So I'm curious, what was the inspiration for these open source Bach projects? Well, um, I'm going to be really honest about this. And uh, I mean, I love open source and I love uh, the, the commons and free culture. And I participate in, in those things every chance that I get. But if you look very deeply into the motivation for myself and for Kimiko, it comes from the fact that I've got this very wonderful, talented, uh, expressive pianist at home, my wife, and uh, she was really not very well known in 2012. There are a lot of reasons for that, um, one of which is that she basically took a decade off from really pursuing piano career to be a competitive weightlifter. So it's a, it's a very non-traditional road for her. And we needed something to jumpstart her career and to let the world know that she is a really good pianist. And we knew that when you make a recording, you, you have some choices, you have some levers and some sliders that you can move around uh, in terms of how you take it to market to get different effects. And we knew that if we tried to enforce a copyright on a recording that she made and charge people typical classical music market rates for CDs, you know, $20 for a CD or something, that we wouldn't sell many, very co many copies, we wouldn't make any money on it, and we wouldn't achieve the goal of you know, making her a better known pianist. So we decided to do something really fun, be daring, make some waves, and give people a lot of reasons to talk about the project that would ultimately also give them a chance to hear what a great pianist Kimiko is. That worked very well, and she was able to form a direct connection to a now quite a sizable fan base who really appreciate her playing and who are anticipating the next recording, uh, the Well-Tempered Clavier, to be released uh, so that they can enjoy that too. And in that respect, we've really achieved that goal. But it would be unfair to say that there was no selfish motive because in any good project, you always have to make it so that everybody who participates gets something from it, right? You know, we wouldn't expect the Kickstarter backers to give us money with, without getting something in return. And on the other side, nobody should expect us to create public goods and give them away for free without also getting something in return. And for me, the greatest satisfaction is seeing now that Kimiko is getting recognition as a world-class uh, pianist and a first-rate interpreter of Bach. It doesn't seem all that different to me than a developer who writes free software and gives it away for free and gets the recognition for writing that software. Do you think that's a fair comparison? To a certain degree, yes, I do.
What are your thoughts generally about the state of free and open source music? Well, if, if you talk about free as in speech, then uh, for sheet music, there's still a long way to go. Um, so you mentioned a project called the Petrucci Library. Uh, which basically tries to uh, bring together all the public domain sheet music, but it's mostly in PDF format. Uh, and so typically PDF, uh, a scanned uh, uh, printed sheet music. And so there it stops. And uh, the step that we want to take is have all that PDF sheet music, but then in a digital format. So transcribed into MuseScore. So you really have the source of the music at hand. And with that, you can do much more things. Uh, if only about so the, uh, the educational aspects, the fact that people can listen to the score, that they can can get into it, uh, change it, adapt it, rearrange it, yeah, master it. Basically, uh, these kind of things uh, become really possible with digital digital score. So the the free state of of sheet music has still a way to go. Um, and we are con continuously thinking like, okay, what's next? How can we achieve this? So, and, and that's still on the top of our minds uh, and, and we'll see. I mean, it's, it's a huge challenge to, uh, to let's say, transcribe all public domain, uh, but uh, it's something that we'd love to do. You're talking about how with a PDF, it's something you can basically print, but with MuseScore, you have free software that you could potentially modify. You have an open format in music xml and people can really take that and do all kinds of fun things like what you guys did on your website with creating a score that moves by while people are watching and it's a lot more flexibility openness at all of those levels must must help exactly yeah that would certainly serve the hackers out there so those who really want to take that music and and do something with it Obviously, most of the markets out there is just looking for uh, sheet music in order to play their instruments. But for them, having a digital score uh, opens up uh, yeah, various possibilities uh, in such a way that you could play along with the digital score. You might not be in an orchestra, but uh, the digital score might be the orchestra for you. So you play your part, but play along with, with the full orchestra. And these kind of things uh, become possible. And that's where we, we try to uh, set uh, the push the limits uh, through our mobile apps uh, and so forth. Um, so these, are, these things are, are still to come. Do you think there's any chance that these kind of projects could be actually hurting musicians? That there are people out there selling scores or selling recordings and they are now suddenly out of a job? Not at all. So what I see by making um, access to sheet music easier, you only serve the market and you, you make the market bigger. Um, it's just like you could, like, like YouTube, for instance. The access to music uh, has been enlarged drastically by YouTube, and many more people are now seeing other people playing on the piano or whatever instrument, and they record themselves, put them on, on there. It inspires so many more people to to pick up an instrument themselves. So the the market in general is 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 just it's almost a renaissance for for making music. Uh, that's how I see it basically. I'm not sure, Robert, if you follow my my thesis there. I do, absolutely. It's all a sign that the industry is in deep change. It's a, it's a time of change, and it's going to continue for a while. 
the reality for a pianist now, even before the open Goldberg variations or open well-tempered clavier, was that there are a hundred years of recorded examples of great pianists playing these pieces. The, the need that the world has isn't that nobody has played these pieces well, because people have. The need that the world has is for music that can be easily shared, used in other products like videos. And of course, Kimiko Ishizaka's unique voice as a pianist, which can't be replicated and doesn't replace anything that has come before it. And the change in the industry that's taking place right now may hopefully serve the purpose of of removing the winner-takes-all phenomenon out of classical music, although especially in the, the touring concert scene, that's still the case. Um, and what I mean by that is that for decades uh, throughout the heyday of you know CD production and before that LPs, recording studios had to risk very high costs to invest in making a recording especially if you take, for example, an orchestra or, heavens forbid, an opera, the costs of making these with all of the people, all the studio time, were astronomical. And that was a risk that they had to take up front before they produced the recording and took it to market. So they were all, all, always trying to calculate how to make the most out of their money. And when they found an artist like Pavarotti, for, for example, where, they, where he always sold, right? people loved his singing, then there was this huge tendency to always want to record Pavarotti because that was risk-free. And that meant that, you know, the other five uh, people who might have made great recordings with their own fingerprint on them um, might not have gotten the chance because the high costs uh, and all the money went to Pavarotti. I'm not picking on Pavarotti. It's maybe a bad example, but the the principle is there that in the industry, the winner takes all. And a, a very small number of people will make the bulk of the recordings. And I think that one of the great things of this democratization of the music industry is that there will be a lot of voices making a lot of recordings on all sorts of instruments, and they'll all leave their fingerprints on the music. And each one of them will find some audience, small or big, and we might never go back to a winner-takes-all situation, but that's okay. I like to think of music as an activity, not a thing. And I really appreciate how these projects you guys have done allow people to participate in making music in many different ways. There's an ethnomusicologist named Christopher Small that wrote a book about this topic called Musicking. And his premise is that music is an activity. It's not a thing. And I think what you guys have done is a perfect example that kind of relating to what you were just saying, Robert, about how people have an, a different opportunity now to participate how they want. They can take the recordings that you guys made and they can remix them or they can take the Muse score files and they can change them or they could, you know, consume them in different ways and all of these different ways of musicking rather than simply here's Pavarotti, he's up on the stage, he's the one who could make music, I'm the person who should buy it. Exactly, nicely said.
do you guys see these projects as having somewhat of an end? Or do you think that the open well-tempered clavier or the open Goldbergs will continue to evolve in some way? It's a little bit hard to say. I know one thing for certain, and that we're going to turn around and make another Creative Commons recording, and it's actually quite interesting, so I'll tell you about it. Uh, we're In April, we're going to go to North Carolina to the Manifold Studio in Pittsburgh, where the last time we were there, we met a man who owns a Pleyel piano. Now, that might not sound like anything familiar to you, but if you had been alive in Paris at the time when Frédéric Chopin was amazing people with his compositions and his pianistic abilities, then you would very well know that Pleyel was Chopin's favorite piano. He loved Pleyel. In fact, Camille Pleyel, the man who made these pianos in Paris was his friend, and he dedicated a set of pieces called the 24 Preludes to Camille Pleyel. Now, these Preludes have another interesting connection because Chopin was clearly inspired by Bach Preludes uh, from the Well-Tempered Clavier. And Kimiko often pairs the Preludes uh, and Fugues of the Well-Tempered Clavier with the Chopin Preludes on programs. So. We've got this piano from Pleyel in North Carolina, and it turns out Chopin actually played this very piano, and we're going to go, and Kimiko is going to record the, the Chopin 24 preludes on the Pleyel piano that Chopin played on in the Manifold Studio in April, and we're going to release that as a Creative Commons recording as well, because uh, we think that it has some great interest to people who want to know what the music sounded like uh, back at that time, more or less, because that was, in fact, a piano that Chopin himself played. So that'll be a Kickstarter, and uh, we invite everybody to support it when it comes out uh, in a week or so. So that's what's next. Very cool. So, Thomas, what's next for MuseScore? Well, uh, next is uh, the release of uh, MuseScore 2.0, uh, which is scheduled for March 24. And that will basically end five years of uh, development. And I'm sure that we will uh, be busy uh, promoting it further uh, during the month of April. And then let's say next up for us is uh, think, uh, yeah, or, or work on the next projects, which is uh, more mobile related. And also uh, start thinking uh, how we can mass digitize uh, the public domain sheet music uh, out there. Um, obviously, we learned quite a lot through these Kickstarters, but it's hard work. It's uh, it's not easy to do. That said, it's 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 not very scalable, and we we will be checking new things on, on how to scale the digitization of sheet music. So so that will be definitely uh, filling up our summer for sure. And then uh, hopefully, yeah, we can make sheet music more accessible. That's that's our end goal. And if there are people listening that share your goal and are inspired by what you guys are saying, do you have any recommendations for how they could get involved with either one of your projects or some other way? For MuseScore, you, well, typically we say, well, look, at the, the software is free. So nothing could stop you from downloading the software uh and and check it out yourself even if you have never composed anything at all just download musecore from musecore.org and then uh, yeah maybe you find a muse in, inside of you and um you start composing who knows 
And for me, I can say that the only thing that's better than listening to the open Goldberg variations on a nice pair of headphones or speakers or the open well-tempered clavier is hearing Kimiko Ishizaka play in person. So if you can either attend one of her concerts or make a concert happen, that's how I'd say you can best get involved in, in our corner of things. Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to both of you. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. I hope you join me again next month. My guest will be Ruth Seeley, and we'll be talking about Red Hat, the Fedora Project, opensource.com, and her new book, Raspberry Pi Hacks. We'll explore ways that people can get involved with free and open source software that don't involve writing any code. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hacking Culture. You can learn more about this show and subscribe at lullabot.com slash hackingculture. Please follow at Hacking Culture and at Matthew Tift on Twitter or mtift on Microcast. You can also contact Matthew via email at hackingculture at lullabot.com. This episode is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. Hacking Culture is produced at Lullabot. The theme music is from the Open Goldberg Variations. Thank you for listening. Hope you stopped recording, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> I know you do outtakes. But <laughs>